Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I couldn't talk to him because... We couldn't speak the same language, basically. I don't speak Japanese. He didn't speak English, but he's running the show there. It's an only filter coffee bar, and he will pour every single coffee in front of the customer. So he'll place the brewing device in front of you, and then he'll just super slowly with the Japanese precision that you find in coffee shops in Japan everywhere. Like they're basically perfectionists when it comes to coffee brewing. I haven't seen anything like it. And it's a beautiful experience. And while you cannot really communicate, you do communicate through the cup. Like he puts all his, you know, knowledge and passion into every single cup and you taste that. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers. And learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Rezi Schlaga. She is a professional coffee writer, photographer, marketer, world traveler, and founder of the blog The Way to Coffee. Born and raised in Germany, Rezi got her master's degree in global studies and worked for international NGOs in India, Vietnam, and Brussels, as well as the EU delegation in Thailand on issues of migration and asylum. She then made a career transition in 2016, left her office job, started her coffee blog, and became a full-time digital nomad. She began traveling the world to discover different coffee cultures, visit coffee farms and coffee shops, take barista courses, and learn from the coffee professionals she met along the way. She is passionate about specialty coffee and promoting local coffee producers and small coffee businesses, and her work has been published in some of the world's top coffee journals, including Standart, Coffee TNI, and Crema. Rezi, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. I feel super honored to be on your show and share my passion for coffee with you. 
Well, I love your passion for coffee, which is one of the reasons that you're on the show. You and I have had a lot of discussions about coffee and travel, and I think you're doing amazing and inspiring work. So I'm super, super excited to have you here today and dive into all of that. But let's just start with a little context about where we are recording this from today and what we are drinking because this is a very coffee-centric episode. And so I am not drinking wine today. I am actually drinking an espresso, which is one of the other things that I love to drink. And I am actually based in Asheville, North Carolina, on the east coast of the United States today. Where are you and what are you drinking? I am currently based in Gran Canaria. So it's an island that is part of Spain, and I am drinking a filter coffee that is called Malaki AB. It is from Kenya, and it was roasted by Right Side. It's a roastery that's based in Barcelona, so it was roasted in Spain, and is a wash process, and I could identify some notes of figs and blackberry. It's delicious. That's amazing. Well, you and I are both digital nomads. And so I think it would be very fitting for us to start off by talking about the coffee gear that we travel with, because I have spent a lot of time researching coffee gear and figuring out how to find an espresso maker that I can also travel with, because you know sort of my initial story about when I was starting out as a nomad and I was leaving my place in LA and I had this giant countertop manual lever espresso maker that I was madly in love with and I used every single day, probably four times a day. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm bringing this thing with me. I know it'll take up its own suitcase, but I'll just chalk that up to the price of having good espresso. And then over the years, I was able to find a device that I've now been using for many years, which is the Hand Presso Travel Espresso Maker. And one of the things that I had a hard time finding in the beginning was a device that actually made real espresso because that's all that I drink. I never drink anything other than straight espresso shots. And so a lot of the marketing around that stuff when I was initially looking for it was saying that you could sort of make things that were kind of like espresso, like stovetop espresso-ish makers and stuff like that. But of course, that doesn't make real espresso, right? Because real espresso, by definition, requires 16 bars of pressure. And so I was able to find this device called the Hand Presso, and you can make espresso out of it real espresso, 16 bars of pressure without any electricity required, first of all. And it's very small, very light, and very portable. So the way that it works is it is basically a bicycle pump technology where you pump up the gauge all the way up to 16 bars. It has a gauge on it, pressure gauge. And once it gets to 16 bars, then you can put in the coffee and it either you can do the ground coffee, or you can even use pods if you want. And then you put the coffee in, it has a porter filter cup and a tamper and everything built in. And then all you need is boiling water. And as long as you can get boiling water, which you can typically get anywhere on an airplane, they can give you boiling water at a campfire out in the woods. You can get boiling water from your, you know, from your campfire or whatever it is in a hotel room, anywhere, anywhere you can boil water. 
that's all you need. And then you pour in the water, you you close it, and then you got the 16 bars of pressure and it just espresses it out. And then you've got your crema, you've got your espresso. And I have been traveling with that for many, many years now. And that's how I make espresso no matter where I am. But I would love to hear a little bit about your travel coffee gear and what you travel the world with. Yeah, first of all, the hand presso is a really good choice as a travel coffee maker if you like espresso. I, on the other hand, I'm traveling with an AeroPress Go. The AeroPress is a super versatile coffee maker. I really love it. You can make something like espresso with it, but you'd probably correct me there and be like, well, <laughs> That's not possible. It's true because you'd have a type of coffee that has a really nice full body and has a similar texture to an espresso, but it wouldn't have a crema, obviously. Because with the AeroPress, I am basically filling it with coffee powder and with water, and I add a little filter to it, and then I will press the water through the coffee. But of course, I wouldn't reach 16 bars in, the, in that way. So what I use the AeroPress for is an espresso-like beverage and also for filter coffee. And I love it because it's so great to experiment with it. You can try different brewing recipes with it and try different, you know, like just different tastes of like, do you want a full body? Do you want a lighter body? There's just a lot of things you can do with the AeroPress, which I really like. And then I also travel with a coffee scale so that I can measure the amount of beans and water that I'm using to brew my coffee. And I'm using a coffee grinder because if I want my coffee to taste the best way possible, I will want to grind the beans just right before brewing. Because as soon as you start grinding coffee, the coffee will start to lose the aromas. So this is why I will only buy whole beans and then freshly grind them every time before I brew my coffee. And one of the things that I want to emphasize to people, because I have seen the gear that you travel with for coffee, okay? And I know the products that you use. And one of the things that I want to point out to people is that your coffee maker, your AeroPress Go coffee maker, costs about 35 US dollars to buy. Okay, somebody can buy that for 35 bucks. The grinder that you use, the manual coffee grinder, costs about $250. And I want to just put that out to you so you can explain to people why you paid $35 for the coffee maker, but you're willing to pay $250 for the coffee grinder. Well, first of all, the coffee grinder is super important. So you want to have a quality grinder that produces an even grind from fine to coarse. So the grinder that I'm using, the Commandante C40 Nitro Blade, it is actually suitable to grind for espresso. So a fine grind produces a fine grind to grind for filter, which will be a coarser grind. And what is amazing is that the coffee grounds will be even. There will be very few fines and very few boulders. Because what happens when you have an uneven grind, it means the coffee will not be evenly extracted. So you might find under extraction or over extraction in your cup, which is something you absolutely want to avoid. 
So this is why I chose the Comandante and it is quite pricey, but it's really worth it because this grinder is engineered so well. I think I'm going to be able to use it for the next, hopefully 20, 30 years, to be honest. And it just produces an outstanding particle size, a very even grind. And that's the first step to then brewing a delicious cup of coffee. The coffee maker, on the other hand, so when you make filter coffee, you actually don't have to spend a lot of money. There are really amazing brewing instruments out there that won't cost very much because in the end, it is basically a device where you put your coffee in, probably with a filter, some work without a filter, and then you want to add water to it and that's it. Now, can you also talk about why you choose to travel the world with a coffee scale? So in addition to your coffee maker and your coffee grinder, you also, in your luggage, always take with you a coffee scale. Can you explain that? Absolutely. So first of all, I love to experiment, right? So I want to be able to try different coffee recipes with the brewer that I'm using. In order to do that, I need to precisely measure the amount of coffee and the amount of water I will use to brew the coffee. So that's why I absolutely need a scale at all times. But it will also, a scale will also help me to, again, avoid over or under extracting my coffee. Because if I'm eyeballing it and I'm adding an amount of water to an amount of coffee that I'm literally just guessing, the chances are that the coffee won't be perfect and it might not even taste good. And it will be hard to get a consistent coffee experience. So if you keep on reproducing the same recipe, for example, because this is the recipe that you like, you want to make sure that you get everything right from the amount of coffee to the amount of water and then also the brewing time. So additionally to the scale, you want to use the timer, but my scale has a timer built in. So that makes it easy. That's amazing. Well, you and I have had so many conversations about coffee and I have learned so much from you about coffee and you are helping me to officially step up my coffee game. So when I start traveling again here post COVID-19, I am definitely stepping up my grinder game, for example, thanks to you. So that's really, really awesome stuff. I want to also ask you about how your time in Gran Canaria has been. I have been to the island before, but only briefly. The Canary Islands, of course, are legendary and amazing. I know that there's not very much coffee that's produced in Europe, but the Canary Islands, because they're so much further south off the coast of Africa, I understand they actually do grow some coffee there. And I'd love to hear about what you have found in Gran Canaria in terms of you know both the coffee production as well as the coffee scene there. Yeah, honestly, it's been an amazing experience. When I arrived in Gran Canaria... I was actually a little bit worried because every time before I travel somewhere, I do extensive research to find the best coffee shops. You know, as soon as I land, I basically just rush to the first coffee shop that I find and I couldn't find any. I was checking uh, Google Maps. I was looking through blogs and I couldn't find a single specialty coffee shop. So I was a bit worried to say the least. And then I had heard that there is coffee growing on the island. But again, I couldn't 
really figure out where exactly and you know how was it just a few plants here and there was it a proper plantation so you know i was really a little bit worried about it at first but then when i arrived it was almost like fate i was walking down um, a street in my neighborhood in the first couple of days that i arrived and i was staying at that time in the old town of las palmas and I was just walking down the street and suddenly I saw this coffee shop that was basically opening that very same day. And it looked very promising. I looked at the equipment, you know, and they had different beans on offer. And I thought like, hey, this could be something. And it actually turned out. So the coffee shop is called Cafeteros. And it turned out that it belongs to the only specialty coffee farmer in Europe. So his name is Antonio. He has been a coffee farmer already for around 15 years in the Valle de Agaete, which is also on in the north of Gran Canaria, about half an hour from Las Palmas. And he was opening that very day his own coffee shop where I could then try taste for the first time, specialty coffee cultivated in Europe. So that was an amazing experience. I've been hanging out at the coffee farm a lot. And in the meantime, there's also another specialty coffee shop that opened in Las Palmas. And a third one is in the making. So I feel like, you know, just this past year, there has been a lot of movement and the coffee scene is looking very promising now. That's so awesome. Well, one of the other things that you and I have really bonded on and connected on other than coffee is our background in international human rights issues and things like that. You have your master's degree in global studies. I have mine in international peace and conflict resolution. And we've both done a lot of work in the international arena before we became digital nomads. And I would love to just go all the way back and hear a little bit about your background growing up in Germany and how you initially got interested in travel and how your career trajectory developed and went in that international direction? Sure. Well, like you said, I grew up in Germany, but I've actually always had a very strong urge to travel, starting even when I was a teenager. So while I was in high school, I went abroad as an exchange student to the U.S. And then during my bachelor's, I went to study in Italy. And in between my bachelor's and my master's, I went abroad to Ecuador for a volunteering experience. So just any chance I had to travel and to experience a new country that I hadn't been to, I just jumped right on that. And I chose an international master's program, the global studies program, as you said, because it actually allowed me to study in Argentina and in Thailand, which was an incredible experience. And even though I think my family was hoping at some point I had enough of traveling, it just never kind of went away. And I just always, still until this very day, I just love traveling and I want to be abroad all the time, which is why I then became a digital nomad. But first, so when I studied my master's, I was very interested in working in development. And I got my first work experience in the field of development work at the EU delegation in Bangkok. 
So there was working as a project assistant in the field of migration and asylum. It was super interesting work and I wanted to continue this trajectory, but I wasn't quite aware yet how difficult it would be for me to actually find a full-time job in this field of work. So I went on to do various internships in India and in Vietnam and in Brussels. I worked as a nanny in between because, you know, I had to finance all these internships and yeah, kept applying for jobs in the field because that's where my heart was at. I really wanted to do field work. And finally, I wasn't able to get a job in the field immediately. So my first full-time job was with an NGO in Brussels that I had also interned with. So there was this first kind of disappointment of, you know, oh, I was going to work, you know, very closely with people in the field, like have that experience of directly working in projects. But I ended up at a desk and I worked as a policy projects and research officer for this NGO for about two years. And while the organization was doing very important work, it's just, yeah, it just wasn't for me, especially the nine to five. Something essential was missing. And I also realized that I, apart from, you know, wanting to work very closely with people, I also wanted to work more creatively. So already while working in Brussels, I started a photography course at an art academy in Brussels, where I was taking courses in the evenings and on the weekends. So that was already an outlet and that was great, but it wasn't enough. So me and a colleague of mine, we shared this passion for coffee and we always kind of joked around, oh, we should do a coffee block at some point. Because we were traveling around Europe a lot in our work, we were attending conferences. And so whenever we had a free moment or sometimes even, you know, we woke up before going to a conference very early to be able to check out the best coffee shop wherever we were in Stockholm, in Copenhagen, Helsinki, all over the Scandinavian countries. So yeah, eventually I just did it. I went ahead and I just wrote down all these amazing coffee shops I was visiting and started to write city guides, you know, to tell people about all these cool places. And when I was totally in love with what I was doing, I thought, okay, this would probably be a good time to quit my job and do this full time. That's amazing. And your coffee blog is so spectacular. I've gone through most of it and it's it's incredible because what I love about it also is that you combine your photography with your writing. And so it's these gorgeous, beautiful sort of photo journal type posts, uh, which are just spectacularly substantive in, in what you're writing about. But the, the photography as well is fantastic. I want to hear a little bit, though, more about it, because I've also read, I mean, I've read your blog, but I've also read some of the articles that you've published in some of the world's top coffee journals. And you are really traveling the world with a, a coffee-centric lens and having coffee experiences. And that relates everything from 
hanging out with coffee farmers and producers to, you know, going to the world's best coffee shops, right? And being able to write about all of this stuff and make recommendations and and all of that, which I think is is amazing, right? So maybe I would just love to start out a little bit with your, because I think you were saying that it, your love and your passion for this kind of started with your coffee shop experience, like going to these really epic coffee shops and having these amazing experiences. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about that in terms of what it was about that that really had the allure and made you fall in love with this. And then also, what were some of the top kind of coffee shop experiences that you remember? Well, first of all, I think when I started in 2016 to then travel full time, and also write my blog full time. I really loved the fact that I was giving my traveling a purpose. So I wasn't just traveling to see something new anymore, but I was traveling because I wanted to either find the best coffee shops or meet interesting coffee professionals that I interviewed. So that was giving me more of a feeling of, purpose. So while I was doing important work in my previous career, where I was working towards social equality, I felt that I was still doing important work by promoting small businesses, coffee producers and coffee professionals. And with that, promoting quality products and sustainability. So when I started out, I was basically just visiting coffee shops and I love the coffee shop experience. I just love to even work in a coffee shop. It's that when I go by myself, it's that feeling of being surrounded by people and yet, you know, focusing on something of my own, like reading or working. And yet you never feel alone. So there's that social aspect of going to a coffee shop that I really love. And I love how a lot of the coffee shops, especially the ones that serve specialty coffee, have such unique atmospheres, such unique interior, and they all have an interesting story behind them. And you'd be surprised how many architects, how many designers, how many people working in financial institutions eventually leave their career behind and start a coffee shop. So that was something that I found very interesting. I think one of the most interesting people I ever interviewed that were running a coffee shop and a roastery was a former professional soccer player. So you have people from all walks of life starting coffee shops and putting their soul into them and, you know, getting creative. So that's something... Together with then the coffee experience, you know, having the opportunity to taste coffees from different origins, that to me was something super fascinating. So I started out with writing city guides just to kind of tell people about all these amazing places that I was finding. And then I moved on to actually wanting to learn more about where coffee coffee comes from. So that meant traveling to the origin of coffee. And the first coffee farm I ever traveled to was in Panama, in a place called Boquete. 
And from there, I started then to share stories beyond coffee shops, but really looking at, okay, where does coffee come from? Who is producing coffee and where? And looking more into really the origin of coffee. Well, one of the incredible pieces that you wrote and that actually got published in Standart, which is one of the top coffee journals in the entire world, was about coffee production in Sri Lanka and the entire history of that there. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that because Sri Lanka is also one of my just favorite countries. I got to spend a couple of weeks there a few years back and it was just super magical on so many levels. And I would love to hear about your Sri Lankan experience and then also maybe just share that sort of context for, for the history and then present day coffee production in Sri Lanka. Because I feel like when most people think of Sri Lanka, it's more of tea production that they think of. And I thought your article just going you know, into the coffee side of things was super interesting. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Sri Lanka is absolutely amazing. I had a really great time there. I spent one month in Sri Lanka in 2019. And before I traveled there, I, of course, did my research. You know, what's the coffee scene like? Uh, what about coffee that is being grown in Sri Lanka? And most importantly, where can I visit a coffee farm? And it's not, it wasn't easy to find out. And that was surprising to me. But when I was digging a little bit deeper into the history of coffee in Sri Lanka, I understood why. So basically, just to sum it up very briefly for you, the Dutch started cultivating coffee in the 1700s. And when the British took control of Sri Lanka in 1815, they picked it up and they expanded the coffee cultivation, leading to something that is even referred to as a coffee mania by 1845. So in that time, Sri Lanka was actually one of the top three coffee exporting countries in the world. This coffee production mania peaked in the 1870s until by the 1880s, coffee leaf rust, which is a fungus uh, that is very dangerous for coffee plants and can basically destroy them. And the coffee leaf rust took over and destroyed the entire crop. And this is why the British turned to cultivating tea, which is then why today we know Sri Lanka rather as a tea producing country than a coffee producing country. So for nearly 100 years, coffee was disregarded. And then it was due to a Dutchman, his name is Harm van Oudenhoven, and a guy from Seattle, who's Lawrence Goldberg, they basically rediscovered coffee in Sri Lanka in the 90s. And they established a coffee roastery. It's called Hansa Coffee. And they really helped revive the coffee industry by focusing on sustainable farming practices. So my first Initial action when I arrived in Sri Lanka was reaching immediately out to Lawrence Goldberg. He is based in Novara Elia, 
And I visited him, not on a coffee farm, but at his production place where he's roasting coffee. And we had a super interesting chat. He was one of the two people that I could identify prior to arriving in Sri Lanka. The other one was Kenneth McAlpine. He was very difficult to track down. I basically contacted him through LinkedIn after finding out about his farm. It's called Avagama Organic Farm and it is nearby Ella, which I'm sure you know because Ella is quite popular with tourists as well. So I basically contacted him on LinkedIn and just told him, look, I didn't even know I was going to write an article at that point. I was just like, look, I just want to learn everything about coffee in Sri Lanka. And he was awesome. He just invited me to the coffee farm and I spent two days with him at the farm. He just showed me around, told me everything there was to know about coffee cultivation in Sri Lanka. And then we planted trees at his farm and we sorted coffee beans together with his super lovely staff. And it was such a great experience. That's amazing. And I know that you have also spent a lot of time in Thailand and really connected with the entire coffee scene there in Thailand and that you actually did a little bridge connect between the Sri Lankan coffee community and the Thai coffee community. And I would love for you to share a little bit about that. Yeah. So Kenneth and I, we kept in touch um, because when I visited him at his farm in Sri Lanka, we totally bonded over the fact how much we love Chiang Mai. So he had been to Chiang Mai before to attend a coffee seminar but he hadn't been to a coffee farm yet. So I basically told him when I was at his farm, look, when I'm back in Chiang Mai and I was planning to go back eventually, let me tell you about a coffee farm tour and invite you to come over. That would be so much fun. And he said, yeah, absolutely, let's do it. So when almost a year later, I was in Chiang Mai and talking to different coffee producers about organizing this farm visit. I contacted Kenneth and just told him, okay, it's happening. Well, you know, are you going to come? And he immediately said yes and booked a flight. And then he joined us on a farm visit to 91 Coffee, which is an amazing coffee farm in Doi Saket. It's not far from Chiang Mai. And by the way, if there are any coffee lovers out there, it is absolutely possible to visit our farm and do a tour there. And I really recommend it because the coffee grower, Vulop Pasananam, he is the most knowledgeable person that I have ever met when it comes to coffee. And he is taking incredibly good care of his coffee farm and the coffee is top notch. It got voted best coffee in Thailand for several years. And it's just an, yeah, just an amazing coffee farm to visit. So Kenneth joined us on a two-day farm visit and we had an incredible time and learned so much. That's so awesome. You know, I can remember the first time I ever went to Chiang Mai and I stayed for like two months. I was blown away by the coffee shop culture in 
Chiang Mai, the caliber of the coffee shops, the ambiance in the coffee shop, the caliber of the baristas. I mean, international barista competition winning uh, folks there that are you know behind the coffee operations and stuff. I mean, just incredible, absolutely on par with anything I've seen in Western Europe or anywhere else in the world. And uh, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, both the coffee shop culture in Thailand, as well as the, you know, the coffee production in Thailand. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. It is fantastic. So one of the reasons why Chiang Mai is one of my favorite places in the whole world is because it is a fairly small city, but it has, and I count it, even though the number keeps changing, 70 specialty coffee shops. In a small city like Chiang Mai, to me, that is absolutely incredible. And that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And what is so special about it is that the coffee, a lot of the coffee that they are serving is actually grown just half an hour drive from the actual coffee farm. So just to give you a little bit of a background about coffee cultivation in Thailand, it's been cultivated in Thailand for over 100 years. There is Arabica coffee in the northern part of the country and Robusta in the south. And the late king actually promoted coffee cultivation in the north as an alternative crop to opium poppy. And this was in the 1960s. So since then, the Arabica production has increased by a lot, especially around Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai, and also in Nan province. So what is really unique in Thailand is that the coffee is increasingly consumed in the country. And that means that growers and roasters and baristas can work together really closely. And why is that so unique? Well, if I go to a coffee shop in Europe, for example, the chances are that the barista has actually never been to a coffee farm. Very few baristas have the opportunity to go. So that means there is a little bit of a missing link between really seeing what's happening at origin and then treating the coffee in a way that it will just bring out the best of the flavors. So in Thailand, the baristas, they can work together with the roasters and the farmers, which is super cool. And I visited several coffee farms in Doi Sakat and also in Doi Pankhon, which is close to Chiang Rai. And there is a very interesting coffee farm in Doi Pankhon. They work together with an coffee exporting company called Beanspire. It is run by my friend Fwadi. And he's actually doing incredible work to promote Thai coffee around the world. So he is exporting Thai coffee to Germany, to the US. So giving people around the world the opportunity to experience Thai coffee. And he's working in very closely with the farmers and he told me they actually adopted and this is super interesting they adopted a processing method that is referred to as canyon wash because they learned about it from farmers in kenya so apart from the exchange that is happening between the barista and the roaster and the farmer in thailand the farmers are also in touch with farmers from around the world and they're learning and 
talking about coffee processing is incredibly important because through processing coffee, you can increase the quality. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Significantly. So this is why these kind of exchanges are super important. That's so amazing. That's so interesting. What I want to do now, Rezi, is sort of ask you to break down a little bit of the lexicon that you're using, right? So most people have heard of Robusta and they've probably heard of Arabica and they've heard of these different terms and specialty coffee and a lot of these terms that you're using. But for folks that are newer to coffee and they may have heard of those, but they don't really know what they mean, can you sort of break that down for us and explain these different concepts? And that way, when people are shopping for coffee or, or drinking coffee or things like that, they'll have a, a better handle on this? Absolutely. Just to give you a short roundup. So specialty coffee is coffee that is produced and brewed according to certain quality standards. So there is an organization called the Specialty Coffee Association, and they came up with a point system, like a scoring protocol, that's basically up to 100. So as soon as a coffee is tasted by professional cuppers, or Q graders, as they are called, and these Q graders will award 80 points or more to that coffee, in that case, it is considered to be specialty coffee. Now, there are different types of coffee. So when I talk about coffee in general, I could be talking about Arabica, I could be talking about Robusta, or even about Liberica, which is a type of coffee that very few people actually have heard of. So Arabica is making up the majority of coffee production in the world. It is considered to be higher quality than Robusta as it is more complex, sweeter, but it also needs a certain climate and a certain altitude to thrive. Robusta has larger cherries. It has a bigger production. It is cultivated at lower altitudes and as the name suggests, it is robust. So it is less prone to diseases like the coffee rust that I mentioned earlier. But Robusta is considered to be lower quality than Arabica. It is considered to bring bitterness to your cup. But I have to say at this point that there is specialty Robusta. So of course, when we talk about Arabica and a lot of coffee roasters will put, for example, 100% Arabica on the package. But that doesn't tell you very much because 
Arabica is a very big word, right? So there, it could be good quality or bad quality Arabica. So when we talk about specialty Robusta, for example, it could actually be a better quality coffee than a lower quality Arabica. And the last type of coffee I mentioned, Liberica, as I said, it is less known. It is also considered to bring bitterness and kind of an earthy taste to the cup, but it can also bring sweetness and can be floral and taste like jackfruit. And um, it all depends on the quality. And Liberica coffee, you will most likely find in Malaysia and the Philippines. Whereas Robusta, just to name a few Robusta producing countries, Vietnam is the biggest one, but Robusta is also widely cultivated in India and also in the south of Thailand. And just to name a few Arabica countries, there will be, for example, Colombia or Kenya or Ethiopia, but there are many, many more. So let's go a little bit deeper, right? So we have now, those are sort of the three main coffee species, right? Arabica, Robusta, Liberica. And let's go a little bit deeper though now in terms of understanding what really makes a great coffee or a really good quality specialty coffee. And take us kind of through the process, the seed to cup pipeline, if you will, and maybe just start off with just the very basics in terms of understanding just bean variety and climate and growing and harvesting and, and that portion of it, and then take us sort of through the processing methods and on down the line. Okay, let's start off with saying the taste of the final product is affected by the variety, the chemistry of the soil, the weather, the amount of rainfall, and sunshine, as well as altitude, and also the way that the cherries are processed. So when we talk about varieties, they are varieties that occur naturally, like Tipica and Bourbon, for example. And then there are cultivars that are actually propagated by human intervention, like Catimor and Castillo. So to go as deep as to talk about all the different varieties, it would really go too far because there are hundreds. But one very prominent variety that you should remember is geisha. And geisha is a super interesting floral fruity coffee that I tasted in Panama when I was in Boquete. So... Why was the coffee so delicious that I tasted? Well, first of all, Bocchetti, for example, has a lot of volcanic soil. It's very nutritious. So that is one aspect that will help coffee to develop very interesting flavors. But then also it depends on, okay, what climate does coffee grow into? It can grow in subtropical regions with, you know, some 16 to 24 Celsius degrees and a well-defined rainy and dry season. But it can also thrive in equatorial regions. So most of the world's coffee actually grows within the so-called coffee belt. That's the area around the equator. And again, Arabica is growing in higher altitudes with a very rich soil. So Arabica needs very rich soil to, to grow. 
And then Robusta will grow on lower altitudes. And Robusta actually likes hot temperatures much more than Arabica. So when we have planted our coffee trees, they are planted from seeds. So what we call coffee beans are actually seeds. And you can put these seeds in the soil and you will, if you treat them nicely, you will have a coffee tree. And when the coffee tree is full of fruits, you want the fruits to be bright red. And then ideally pick them by hand. So, for example, these are some quality standards that are part of specialty coffee. You pick the very ripe cherries, you pick them by hand, you sort them, and you process them. And there are very many interesting ways to process coffee and some very experimental processing methods. But I'm just going to drill down to the three main processing methods. There is natural processing, where we take the intact cherries and we just spread them out on drying beds or other surfaces. And you rake them and you churn them throughout the day for several weeks and when the moisture content of the bean is down to around 11%, you will then remove all the layers from the bean or the seeds. And then you will have a very complex and fruity cup of coffee after it's been roasted. So when we talk about wash processing will actually remove the pulp from the coffee cherry, then soak the seeds and water to remove the mucilage, which is kind of a slimy layer around the coffee beans, and then follows a fermentation from 12 to 48 hours approximately, but there are variations. The beans are then rinsed again, and dried with a small skin layer left on them, which is called parchment. Finally, the coffee is holed to remove the parchment and wash coffees normally lead to quite bright and acidic flavors. And when we have a wash coffee, we often find a very clean cup where the natural processed coffees tend to be more complex. As I said, a lot of variation exists. One of them is the honey processing, where we basically remove the pulp, but we leave the mousilage on when we dry the coffee. And then again, all the layers are being removed in the final step so that we have the green bean. Then we, obviously, the coffee needs to be transported to the roast facility, and then when you roast the coffee, there are different ways of roasting the bean, two different colors. Basically, the roasting affects the color of the coffee, the moisture content. There are a lot of chemical processes happening while you roast coffee. And your coffee can turn from sweet to bitter with very high temperatures. I personally prefer a light roasted coffee. A light roasted coffee is 
a light brown color. There's absolutely no oil on the surface. And the coffee will have a crisp acidity and very bright flavors. A lot of people will actually prefer a medium roast where the coffee is roasted slightly longer. It has a brown color and you'll find a very rounded flavor profile in your cup. It is more approachable than a light roast. So when someone is new to specialty, they might try a light roasted coffee and be really overwhelmed by the complexity. Whereas a medium roasted coffee will be a little bit more similar to what they are used to. And then finally, there's the dark roast. It's dark brown color. It can even have, if it's roasted super dark, it can have this oily surface. And the coffee tends to be low in acidity, have a quite heavy body. But many of the original characteristics of the coffee are actually replaced by roasty flavors. So when coffee is roasted, basically there is a caramelization of the sugars in the coffee, right? So if we overdo it, all we have left is bitterness. All right. So let's summarize this here in terms of some actionable takeaways for folks. If people are listening to this and they want to try to step up their coffee game a little bit and start trying some new, maybe higher end, maybe more sophisticated, maybe more complex coffees than they have traditionally been drinking, how should they approach that? What should they look for? How should they start getting into better coffees? I would say the first step is to find a specialty coffee shop near you that is also selling coffee beans. Have a nice, lovely chat with a barista. Just tell the barista your taste preference. Do you like chocolatey coffees? Do you like fruity coffees, floral coffees? And if the, even that is too much for you, just tell the barista what kind of flavors you like. And then... Hopefully, the barista will be able to point you in the right direction. So if you are interested in rather traditional coffee tastes that are chocolatey or nutty, then a single origin coffee from Brazil would be an excellent point to start. Brazil is the perfect gateway coffee into the world of specialty for people who are new to it. Another country, origin country, that's really good to look at here is Colombia as well. Colombia has some super delicious chocolatey, nutty coffees that will just blow your mind. And if you are already looking for something a little bit more experimental, more fruity, then I recommend to look into African coffees like Ethiopian coffee or Kenyan coffee who are known to be fruity and floral and have a very pleasant acidity. So when you have identified more or less what kind of taste you are looking for, you can then choose the origin country that matches your taste. But you'll also want to pay attention to the roast level, right? So probably start out with a medium roast just to be safe. Unless, again, you want to 
experiment a little bit, go for a light roast immediately. That's perfect. And then also ask the barista, okay, this coffee, what is the best brewing equipment? Because not every coffee will work perfectly with every equipment. Even though you can absolutely brew, you know, let's say you buy a filter coffee, you can absolutely use whatever device you have at home to start with. But you might want to try different devices because they will accentuate different flavors in the coffee. And then, of course, just to take a step back, you might want to then also decide, are you more into espresso or are you more into filter coffee? And that will give you a good start. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's very important to get a coffee grinder and freshly grind your beans. It will really improve your experience. Those are really awesome tips. I mean, one of the things that I do as I travel around the world and I go to other coffee shops, which is also one of the highlights of my travel experience as well, right? Finding the best coffee shops in the city and going into spending extended time there, right? Working from those coffee shops day after day and just being in the ambiance of those of those epic places is one of my favorite sort of travel experiences. And then, of course, what I do is I try the different coffees on the menu, right? Because if it's a specialty coffee shop, they will usually often have different types of beans that you can choose from, right? So whether you're drinking espresso or you're drinking a pour over or whatever type of coffee you're ordering, they will usually be able to make it for you from different beans, which is exactly what you just described. The beans from Ethiopia will have this type of flavor profile. The beans from Colombia will have this other type of flavor profile. And then I just try all of them, right? So <laughs> I just go in each day and I just try, I just go down the menu and I just try them all, right? And then you're going to all of a sudden, I think you're suggestion about talking to the barista is really important because any barista that works in a coffee shop like that is going to be quite knowledgeable and passionate about the different coffees that they serve. And they're going to be able to explain to you in the same way that a sommelier would be able to explain to you about the wine that you're about to order from a restaurant. And when you're tasting it at a wine tasting, what exactly is that flavor profile, the floral stuff, you know, versus the fruity tastes and things like this that are all part of that profile. The exact same thing is, is true with coffee, right? And so you'll have it described to you and then you'll be able to taste it and see what that tastes like. And then you'll be able to choose what you like. And I think that's a really good recommendation to start buying beans from that place because you're able to sample the coffee. Then you pick the one you like the best in your that you've tried there. And then you get a bag of beans and then you try to reproduce that at home. And you can kind of continually upgrade your equipment, you know, your grinder and your coffee maker or your espresso maker, whatever it is, you know, until you're able to get at that level. But I think that's a really good approach because then you can say, oh, I realize that, you know, of all of these, turns out my favorite is coffee from this country, you know, that tends to have this particular flavor profile. And then you can kind of start experimenting with other coffees from that country that have, you know, variations on the flavor profile. And you just kind of go from there, right? And then you're all of a sudden you're into the world of coffee. Absolutely. It's as easy as that. It's just the first step is really to open your mind because if you are new to specialty coffee, chances are most of your life you have been drinking coffee that has either been very low quality or has been burned, you know, literally burned while it was being roasted. So for a lot of people, 
bitterness is actually a fundamental part of their coffee experience. This is the kind of tasting note that they are used to. So when they're trying specialty coffee for the first time, they might have the sensation that the coffee is sour, for example, because they're not used to the kind of acidity in their coffee. So when the coffee is actually sour, that means it is under extracted and we don't want it to taste sour. But a lot of people mistake a pleasant acidity with the coffee being sour simply because they're not used to it. So I remember my first specialty coffee experience that was really mind-blowing. I was in Finland in Helsinki in a coffee shop and it was a specialty coffee shop and I ordered myself I think a flat white or latte and they asked me okay what type of coffee bean do you want because they as you already said they had a variety of beans there to select from so I just told them okay you choose I like fruity coffees and then they brewed a flat white for me that was absolutely incredible it was an ethiopian coffee it had notes of red berries strawberry in particular there were hints of vanilla like it was just unlike any coffee i had ever tried and from there on there was just no going back and i as well had you know tried a lot of when I was living in Italy, I was drinking a lot of Italian coffee and I considered it to be good coffee. But then once I actually entered the world of specialty coffee, it was like, yeah, like a whole new world opened up, a whole new world of flavors. That's amazing. That's so awesome. Well, I also want to hear a little bit, Resi, about your travel lifestyle as a digital nomad. In general, how do you structure your lifestyle and your travel cadence and all of that? Well, I've been much more slow mading recently than at the beginning. When I first started as a digital nomad, I was changing location basically every one to two months. Wasn't staying very long in the same place. I moved around and it was amazing. And I was able to visit a lot of places in a short amount of time, but it was also tiring. So I started to travel a little bit more slowly because it also, if I want to really enter a coffee culture, a local coffee community, I need to spend a little bit more time in the places that I go to. So I've been traveling a little bit more slowly. Well, during COVID, obviously, that's a given. But also in general, I try to spend several months in the place that I live in. And I will go to local coffee shops. That's always the first thing I do. And it's for me a really great way to connect with the local community. So in a way, coffee is opening up doors in that way that I can I immediately have a common interest with the person that I'm talking to, whether it's a barista or a roaster or another coffee professional. And we can find a lot of things to talk about immediately, which is great. And so I'm basically just, you know, I'm arriving, I'm starting to go to coffee shops and then I take it from there. 
And similar to what happened here in Las Palmas, it often like a world opens up to you once you spend a little bit more time and you meet people, you start hearing about, you know, in the case of Chiang Mai, for example, about coffee farms and coffee producers, and you meet more and more coffee people and it feels amazing. It's like being part of a community wherever you go, you always know you'll find, you know, folks that share your passion and yeah, so I do a lot of coffee hopping. I love to work from coffee shops. And whenever I look for my next destination, I always make sure that there is a connection to coffee in some way. I also travel to places where there might not be a super interesting coffee scene, but I can tell you that I always find a story to tell. It hasn't happened once that I traveled somewhere and there was absolutely nothing to talk about. Like whatever person you talk to, you'll always find a super interesting coffee story somewhere. That's amazing. I totally agree, by the way, about the slow matting and the going to the same coffee shop day after day. I mean, for me, that's just such a highlight. Like, you know, 2019 was last year I was traveling around and I spent two months in Cape Town in South Africa, you know, just based in the CBD, the central business district downtown. And I was literally two blocks or less uh, walk from Truth Coffee, which is one of my favorite coffee shops in the world. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. And the ambiance is amazing. The coffee is amazing, all of that kind of stuff. And it was just such a delight to be able to go there every single day and work from there all day, every day. And the people get to know you, right? So every day you walk in and everybody's like, hey, you know, and they know you and this and that. And then it's like, which one is it going to be today? This one or this one? Because I, like I told you, I rotate through the menu, right? Like I try all the different espressos with all the different beans and, you know, do the whole thing and stuff. But then they get to know you and then you really are able to feel like a, like a regular, like a local, like a resident. And I just love that about travel. Yeah, I agree with you. There is a particular coffee shop in Chiang Mai. Perhaps you have been there. It is called Graph Coffee. Yes, I remember Graph Coffee very well. Yeah, tell me your experience. It's basically this shoebox coffee shop that is tiny. You can fit maybe a handful of people in there. And the decor is absolutely lovely. It's this kind of vintage style decor. And when I entered for the first time, it was like all the stars aligned, like everything came together. The music was beautiful. It was just a super chill, amazing soundtrack playing. I was sitting in this small cafe, which by the way, now gets super crowded. But at that time, I was the only person. So it was really lovely to have all this space and to really, you know, take a lot of photos and check every little corner. And then I got a super delicious signature drink that was made with and now you might think, wow, that sounds crazy, but it was espresso with chili and tomato juice. And it was absolutely fantastic. So Graf Coffee are known for their very creative signature drink menu. So if you have a chance to go back, you should absolutely try this drink. I think it's called Demon, if I remember correctly. And it was just delicious. So everything was just perfect. Everything aligned. And that was one of my favorite coffee shop experience to date. 
I would love to hear about some of your other top ones as well. Yeah, I have to say all of my top coffee experience have been in Asia, but the countries that really struck me the most were Thailand, Japan, and Taiwan. And in Japan, I visited a coffee shop that is called Nijokoya in Kyoto. It's a super tiny wooden house. You probably not even notice it if you didn't know. It's close to Nijo Castle and it's run by this guy. I couldn't talk to him because we couldn't speak the same language. Basically, I don't speak Japanese. He didn't speak English, but he had a few stickers of European roasters I really like. So we just kind of pointed at the stickers and we agreed that they were really good. But he's running the show there. It's an only filter coffee bar and he will pour every single coffee in front of the customer. So he'll place the brewing device in front of you and then he'll just super slowly with the Japanese precision that you find in coffee shops in Japan everywhere. Like They're basically perfectionists when it comes to coffee brewing. I haven't seen anything like it anywhere else in the world. And he just places the brewer in front of you and he brews the coffee in very slow, circular motions. And it's a beautiful experience. And while you cannot really communicate, you do communicate through the cup. Like he puts all his, you know, knowledge and passion into every single cup and you taste that. The coffee was delicious. It was on the darker side. So it was a little bit more of a traditional approach because he is sort of a mix between the traditional Kisaten Japanese coffee houses where they serve very dark roasted coffee and a specialty coffee approach. So it was kind of in the middle and it was lovely. The atmosphere was also very nice. People were whispering to each other. There was music in the background, like again, like the atmosphere, I think it also plays into the whole experience. That was very lovely. If you're ever in Kyoto, I recommend to absolutely go and check it out. I love Kyoto. I don't think I have been to that particular coffee shop, but I have spent about a month in Kyoto and it is just a truly spectacular and really, really special city. And I agree with you in general. I have been blown away by the sophistication of the coffee culture in Asia. Absolutely. It's also quite interesting because countries like Japan and Taiwan will actually buy some of the most expensive and most exclusive coffees in the world. So they really don't mind also paying for a really good quality cup of coffee. So sometimes in Japan or in Taiwan, you'll actually order a filter coffee that will set you back $15. And that's not even pushing it to the limits. And It's worth it to the people. They appreciate the taste and the flavor so much that they don't mind to spend that kind of money for a good cup of coffee. I would say Taiwanese people are definitely more into filter coffee than they are into espresso. So unlike in Europe where people seem to still prefer espresso more than filter, even though the filter loving community is growing in Taiwan, that's definitely the other way around. People really appreciate filter coffee 
and I visited a very nice coffee shop in Taipei that also roasted their own beans. And I tried the Taiwanese coffee. This was very interesting. It was unlike anything I had ever tasted. And that's always wonderful when you have that cup of coffee where you take the first sip and you're like, oh, wow, okay, this is new. You know, this is fantastic. And it tasted... A lot. So it had notes of apricots, notes of prune, and it was quite fruity, but very different from a lot of the fruity coffees I had tasted from Ethiopia or Kenya that were often very berry-like. So yeah, that was a great experience for sure. Another coffee shop experience that I had in Kofu in Japan at Terasaki Coffee, which was also a super cute coffee shop with a very beautiful interior that was roasting also their own coffee. And it's so beautiful because I was there around three years ago, I want to say. And until this very day, they are still, we are in contact through Instagram and they still write me from time to time. So we're still staying in touch So even though a lot of the times, wherever I travel, if I don't stay very long, I won't have time to go back to the coffee shop several times. There are still certain coffee experiences, certain coffee shops where I was still able to yeah, create a bond with the person working there or running the shop and we keep in touch. And, you know, we check in when like big life events happen like COVID and that is really, really nice. And sometimes they will post a story on Instagram, you know, just as a reminder. It's like, oh, one year ago, you know, Resi was here. And that is so, so nice. That's amazing. I think it's really cool, too, what you were saying about going to coffee shops where the coffee is grown and processed and roasted and served all in the same country, right, in in close proximity, because the super majority of global coffee, of course, is produced in certain coffee-producing countries. And then after it's grown and processed, it's exported and it's roasted elsewhere in another country, right? Which is what we're talking about, right? These coffee shops that offer you beans from all around the world with all different types of flavor profiles. But um, one of my favorite coffee shop experiences in the world was in Colombia when I went to the San Alberto coffee shop in Cartagena, which is the most award-winning single estate coffee in all of Colombia. So it's grown there and then it's taken to this coffee shop and roasted there and served there. And it's preeminent award-winning coffee in Colombia. And it was some of the best coffee that I have ever had, but it's really cool when that's all they do. And it's locally grown, locally processed, locally roasted, and then locally served. Of course, that's always the best experience. Even though I have to say, it is quite interesting when a coffee grower, coffee producer is cultivating, processing the coffee, sometimes they actually have no idea what the coffee tastes like for the consumer because maybe they don't have, you know, um, a massive, you know, professional espresso machine at the 
at the farm. Even though now more and more coffee producers have that kind of equipment, of course, but there are still some coffee producers that don't know what their coffee tastes like when it lands in your cup, which I think this is something that absolutely has to change, first thing. Um, but then on the other hand, it's also like roasting coffee. For example, roasting coffee is almost like an art. So if you are producing coffee and then someone else is roasting it, they might actually roast it very differently from how you would roast it. So then it can happen that you will find the same coffee from the same producers, but it's being roasted from different roasteries. So that will give you the opportunity then if, if you ever come across that, you know, to then taste, okay, how did this roaster interpret this coffee? So that's another interesting thing. I mean, there are so many in coffee. Honestly, I never stop learning. I'm learning every single day and I'm getting surprised every single day by something that I learn or that I taste. And that's, that's the beauty of it, right? Well, I hope that's what this episode sort of contributes to as well. If everybody that's listening to it is just my relationship with you and just talking with you about coffee has really pushed me to start experimenting and taking my coffee game to the next level and trying to create for myself higher quality coffees in terms of the grinding and the way that I'm making it and all of this kind of stuff, as well as really starting to go out and experiment with these different flavor profiles and stuff like that. And once you kind of do that and you get interested in it, then all of a sudden the entire world opens up of an incredible number of, of possibilities and experiences and all of that, which is super fun to do, especially as you're traveling around the world and you're incorporating the travel with the coffee tasting and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's been super fun for me. You know, I mean, I've done coffee tastings in Bogota and I've gone to coffee plantations and tours in Colombia and this different kind of stuff. And so as you sort of incorporate that into your your world travel, it just really all takes on a deeper meaning and and just becomes super, super interesting to see and to experience. So let me ask you one more question, Resi, before we move into the lightning round and wrap this up. You have now been a full-time itinerant nomad traveling the world for over five years. You've been to around 50 plus countries. When you think back on all of it and your decision to continue traveling, why do you choose to continue traveling? What do you get out of it? At this point in your life, what does travel mean to you? I think I would have to touch upon what I what I just mentioned, which is basically that there is so much more to learn. Like even just in coffee, you know, my motivation to travel is still mainly because I want to learn more about coffee. I want to meet more coffee people and I want to connect with them and build a network and that's one of my main motivations that keep me going because while of course I love you know I also love food and experiencing all different kinds of foods and seeing amazing sights and landscapes while I love all of that um, I would still say what drives me is to learn more about coffee to taste more and more incredible coffees and more than anything just keep meeting incredible coffee people. That's awesome. All right, Resi, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Absolutely, Matt. Let's do it. Let's do it. The lightning round. 
What is one book that has significantly influenced you over the years you'd most recommend people check out? That would be 100% The World Atlas of Coffee from James Hoffman. If you're just starting out learning about coffee, this is the number one book you want to take and read. Amazing. Who is one person that is currently alive today that you've never met that you would most love to have dinner with? That would be Michelle Obama. I just find her absolutely incredible. The way she focuses on social issues, her kindness, and I'm sure even just being in her presence for one dinner, I would learn so much. That's awesome. If you could go back in time knowing everything that you know now and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Rezzy? I would say, Rezzy, surround yourself with people who support you and who lift you up. Awesome advice. Rezzy, what is your number one favorite specialty coffee in the world? Oh, easy. That would be the Panama Geisha that I was able to try at Cotoba Farm in Boquete. Amazing. Of all the coffee shops you've ever been to all over the world, if you were to narrow it down, what are your top three specific coffee shops that you would say are your all-time favorite in the world that you definitely recommend people go to if they're in that country? That's definitely Graf Coffee in Chiang Mai and Nijo Koya in Kyoto and Terasaki Coffee in Kofu, Japan. Awesome. Of all of the places that you have been in the world, what are your top three favorite travel destinations? Oh, okay. Chiang Mai is all the way up there for sure. And then one of my favorite destinations was in the Japanese Alps, just traveling around in a camper van. That was incredible. And then also Montenegro. Interesting. I have been to Montenegro. That is a gorgeous country. I've been to the Bay of Kotor and went swimming in the Bay of Kotor. And it's just like the landscape is insane and gorgeous and beautiful. That's a really good pick. Rezi, last question. What are your top three bucket list destinations? These are places you've never been. They're the highest on your list you would most love to see. Oh, easy. I will want to go to Georgia as soon as possible. And also to Ethiopia, which is the motherland of coffee. And finally, I would love to go to Iceland and just camp in the wild and hike for a few weeks. That would be amazing. That is awesome. Those are really, really good picks. Ethiopia is super high on my list as well. It's also one of my favorite foods in the world. In addition to loving Ethiopian coffee, it's such an incredibly special place. And as you mentioned, it's the global birthplace of coffee. So that would be super, super amazing. Rezi, I want you to let people know how they can find you, follow you on social media, definitely read your amazing coffee blog. And how do you want them to come into your universe? Oh, so if you want to learn more about what kind of coffee equipment you need uh, to get started in specialty coffee, or you just want to find the best coffee shop near you, then I would recommend to check out thewaytocoffee.com, which is my blog. You can also find me on Instagram under Way to Coffee. 
Amazing. We are going to link all of this up in the show notes. So everything that we've talked about, the contact information for Resi, all of her recommendations, including the specific coffee shops that she talked about and recommended, all of that stuff is going to be in one place in the show notes. So just go to themaverickshow.com, go to the show notes for this episode, and there you will find everything that we discussed on this episode. Resi, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was amazing. Thank you so much, Matt. I really, really love talking coffee with you. It's my favorite thing in the whole world. So thank you for the opportunity. This was awesome. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.